Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, your truth, and in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ, Emmanuel, our Lord. Amen. Every year, without failing, from Thanksgiving through Christmas Eve, I watch National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation at least one time per week. I watched it last night, caught it in the middle, finished it, caught the beginning because it's on 24-7, and then watched it through the middle. I know that our time and season is shifting towards Advent, thanks to Clark and Ellen and Eddie and dear little Ruby Sue. But poor Clark. All Clark wanted was a house covered in lights, his family gathered around the dining room table, and to have the happiest Christmas since Bing Crosby Crosby tap danced with Danny Beepin' K. But that's the Christmas that we all want, right? I spent yesterday with my family watching a a holiday classic crammed into a movie theater with a bunch of strangers wearing a a pointy green elf hat throwing snowballs across the movie theater hoping to create what Clark couldn't. And by judging by the sold-out theater that I was in and the sold-out shows after our showing, I wasn't alone. The temptation to over-sentimentalize or to create the greeting card Christmas grows every day as we move from Thanksgiving to Advent and then Advent into Christmas. Hallmark movies, specialty holiday drinks, cookies, cards, and perfectly curated Advent nativity scenes invite us to go full Clark Griswold and forget the world in which we live, to forget the world that God entered into is the world God created. That God comes to us as a, as a child. It can leave us scratching our heads. When God comes in human form, that's called the incarnation. Say it with me. Incarnation. You all learned a stained glass word that you'll never need anywhere else in your life. But now you know. As Dee Dee's lyrics highlighted, the same themes persist year after year. War, crime, violence, poverty, totalitarian oppression, religious persecution, torture, selfishness, and greed. In a sermon that she wrote back in 1984, 1984 is my favorite Christmas because it was my first Christmas, but that year Fleming Rutledge observed that year after year she had very little difficulty finding horror or scary sermon illustrations. And she asks, what would you like to wager that the same themes will be present in our lives next year? And and don't get me wrong. As you walk back to your car today, if you look in the Parsonage front yard, you will find Olaf, Jack Skellington, a Christmas flamingo, and a unicorn. I rarely pass on specialty holiday drinks, and the nativity scene on our mantle looks nothing like what was described by Matthew and Luke. And as I said, I've watched the Christmas vacation more than once a week throughout this month. And if you ask my wife, she'll tell you that I'm more like Clark Clark Griswold than I would ever care to admit. 
every year. War, crime, violence, poverty, racial hatred, totalitarian oppression, religious persecution, homophobia, torture, selfishness, and greed. A.K.A. sin persists. Still, the bright lights from Mr. Marcy's house on Abington Street and the smell of gingerbread coming from our oven invite us to forget, even just for a moment, that the world is not how God would have it. And to put it theologically, the world is pretty messed up. Matthew's account of the first advent ensures that the church does not forget the messed upness of Advent and Christmas, or that we forget the good news of the gospel. The first time I ever served as a liturgist, that's the person who, who reads the scripture reading uh, during a worship service, the first time I ever did that was on Christmas Eve. This was the first Christmas after I began classes at Wesley Theological Seminary. And because I was a newly minted seminary student, and I thought that I knew everything that my congregation or I would ever need to know about the Bible, I didn't heed the words of my pastor. Just like a first-year college student returning home from winter break, ready to teach their family about the ways of the world, I didn't heed the advice that had been given to me, the sage advice. I didn't read the scripture reading before I got in front of the congregation. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke of Matthew. Oh man, chapter one, verses verses one through seventeen. I nervously said, "A record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was father of Isaac. Isaac was father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brother. Judah was the was the father of per." Perez and, and Zerah, yeah, whose mother was, was, was Tamar. Perez was father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Aram. It was the genealogy of Jesus. I took a deep breath when I got to King David. I grabbed the lectern and I just, I, I hoped for the best. We were all in it together at this point. You know, the packed standing room only sanctuary. The names that I could barely pronounce were a who's who of the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Hebrew Bible. You're welcome, Lindsay, that today's scripture reading skipped those first 17 verses. But what you need to know about our scripture reading is that verse 20 connects us back to the list of 42 generations and three sets of 14. Joseph, son of David. Before Matthew speaks of angels visiting Joseph in his sleep, before the Magi arrive, before John the Baptist prepares the way of the Lord, and before the disciples are called or the sick are healed, Matthew wants his readers to know that Jesus of Nazareth, the man who healed the sick, fed the hungry, ate with sinners, and was nailed to a tree, is the one for whom all of Israel waited. And as Matthew is reading or writing or proclaiming these words, the prophet Isaiah would be front and center in the minds of his original audience. You have to see, Matthew's original audience were Jewish Christians, followers of Jesus who had been expelled from their synagogues, just like Jesus told them would happen. So as Matthew names 
Abraham, Jacob, Tamar, Hezron, and Ram, Solomon, Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, and David. The words of the prophet Isaiah are percolating in the minds of this original audience because what you have to know is that Matthew's original audience knew their Hebrew Bible better than any of us could ever imagine. The prophet wrote, A child is born to us, a son is given to us. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. From David's throne, from David's throne and for his kingdom, establishing and sustaining with justice and righteousness forever. The reign of King David was was the golden era for Israel. When Matthew's audience is hearing his words for the first time, they were expelled from their synagogues. They were mostly poor or ostracized in their community. And most importantly, they were living under Roman rule. It's a far cry from the kingdom that was built by a rock-slinging giant slayer. But baked into Joseph, son of David, is the good news of the Incarnation. The 42 generations before Joseph would not ever make the cut for a Hallmark movie special. And Matthew's original audience knew this. I imagine that the kids in children's church right now are not learning about Tamar or Peeping Tom, King David, or any of the other names that we omitted from Advent 2022. But if they are, parents, good luck at lunch today. Take Abraham, for instance. He's the patriarch of the 42 generations. He lied about his wife, claiming her to be his sister. He had a child with a woman he enslaved, and then he almost slit the throat of his son Isaac. Then there's Tamar. Tamar is a widow. She then disguises herself as a prostitute. She sleeps with her father-in-law. But when her father-in-law finds out that Tamar was a prostitute, he orders her to be killed, only to then call off the execution because Tamar is now pregnant with his child, Perez, who makes it into Jesus' family tree. And then there's King David, who if King David was around in 2022, would have already been canceled. He would not have been present. Peeping Tom, King David, had his best friend, Uriah, sent off to the front lines of a war so that Uriah would die. So that King David could then take Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, for, her, for himself. Bathsheba's name isn't even listed in Jesus' gene- genealogy. We know her as Tamar's wife. But when Matthew writes, Joseph, son of David, her name and her story becomes baked into the good news of the gospel. Pastor Susan Robb notes that the first readers of this story would have known the good, the bad, and the ugly of their shared history. And that God was faithful to their family in the midst of their inevitable family. Heartbreaks, challenges, joys, and yes, even dysfunction. Matthew opens with a genealogy not only to intrigue his audience with triggers of their shared memories, but to also make certain that they know that Jesus, the last person who's added to this genealogy, is the fulfillment 
of all that God was doing throughout the life of Israel. In skipping verses 1 through 17, we might be making life easier for the liturgists, but the reality is that we miss that the good news of Advent and Christmas is even better than a Griswold, even better than the Griswold family could, could ever imagine. God is stepping into, not over or around or under, the messiness and the brokenness of our world. The angel's message to Joseph is that the stumbling blocks of, the, of Christmas past, present, and future do not prohibit or inhibit God's saving work. We don't have to wait for the world to be perfect because God's not waiting for us to be perfect. The tree will be the wrong shape and a squirrel will jump out of it. The turkey is going to be dry. Your end-of-the-year bonus is going to come as a subscription to a jelly club, and your boss might show up in his pajamas with a bow on his chest and a gag in his mouth. Your relatives that you don't want to see, they're going to overstay their welcome. And that powder room appliance, well, it's going to be full. But no matter how much we try to avoid the broken or messiness of the world in our, in our own lives, the birth of Joseph's, Joseph's boy tells us, That creation is not separated and has never been separated from God. Our story is not Jesus' story. Rather, Jesus takes the world's story, our sin, the messy side of our lives that we try to hide during the holidays upon himself. The peace that we want on earth, the, the peace that we will attempt to create for ourselves, we'll try to bake it in the oven, attach it to the roof or make sure it's inflated in the front yard. It actually comes through the grace of God through a child, through a family that's as messed up as mine and as messed up as yours. Amen.